All right, let's get into our new series as we study the book of Acts. Carl Kuhl writes in his book, Bloodstained Pews, and he shares the story from D-Day. And he writes, on June 5th, 1944, Nazi Germany was over, had overtaken Europe. Poland had fallen, France had been overrun, and Britain was hanging on to its freedom by a thread. The next 24 hours would determine the fate of Britain, Hitler, and the entire Western world. At approximately 9.30 p.m., the 101st Airborne, known as the tip of the spear, takes off from England to Normandy on the eve of the greatest invasion of history, Operation Overlord. We know it today simply as D-Day. There were two American medics who were with the 101st who jumped, Kenneth Moore and Robert Wright. They were among the nearly 13,000 paratroopers who dropped into France under the cover of darkness. Now, like most of the paratroopers who jumped that day, they missed their, their drop zone. And like many of the medics, they got separated from their supplies. And the only tools and resources they had to care for the wounded was the limited uh, amount of resources they had strapped to their bodies. They land at about 3 a.m. that morning near a small village in France. At first, all is quiet. And soon, the Germans and the Americans spot each other. Gunfire breaks out. Moore would later say that there is no substitute for hearing a bullet snap past your head and realize that somebody is trying to kill you. The village fluctuates between American and German control over the next 36 hours, but Moore and Wright weren't there to fight the enemy. They were there because their training and their purpose was to care for the wounded. As Wright sizes up the situation, He spots an old church building, and he decides that that's going to be a perfect place for them to bring the wounded and assess them and care for them. The church building itself was, at that point, 900 years old, and it was a very plain, simple stone structure with a handful of wooden pews. And so Wright puts a flag with a red cross on the front so that everyone would know that inside was help. And then he and Moore got to work. Moore finds this old cart, and he begins to comb the uh, village-turned-battlefield, and he loads up injured soldiers and takes them one at a time on this cart and wheels them into the church building where he lays them on these pews so that he and Wright can assess and treat their wounds. At various points during the day, Wright and Moore, their work is interrupted. At one point, a, a German soldier busts through the door, and he points his machine gun at them, But then after he sees that they are treating wounded soldiers, he crosses himself in reverence and departs. Later, three German officers will walk in, and when they see that Moore and Wright are treating everyone, regardless of the uniform that they are wearing, the officers promise to send a doctor on site and help as soon as they can. At one point, a bomb crashes through the ceiling and hits the floor, and seconds tick by, and nothing happens. It was a dud. So Moore grabs it and throws it out of the window just in case. By 10.30 p.m. on D-Day, the church building was packed with the wounded, and all the stained glass had been destroyed by bullets. About 36 hours after the 101st Airborne had first landed in France, the fighting moves on from that area, and so do the medics. 
By the time they leave their makeshift aid station, Moore and Wright have treated over 80 different soldiers and civilians in the church building, several of them German and even a young local girl. Both men are awarded the Silver Star for what they did in that small French village, and Wright would go on to receive three Purple Hearts for what he did in the war. And if you go to that small French village today, that church building still stands. But there's something unique about it. You see, after the war ended, the villagers came back and they started cleaning up their their village and their area. And they came to the old church building and they entered and they saw the blood from all of the soldiers that Moore and Wright had, had treated covered the wood on those pews. But the people of that village didn't replace those pews with shiny new ones. In fact, they didn't even sand the pews down and try to make them fresh and clean. They didn't even put cushions on the the pews so that you wouldn't see the blood. Instead, they preserved that blood on those pews. And you can still see it even today. The people in that village wanted to make absolutely clear for future generations, that this church was to be a place of hope and healing for the broken and hurting people. And on June 6, 1944, that's exactly what it was. It was a place for the wounded to come, for the injured to bleed, for people to be healed, for the hurting to be cared for, no matter who they were, no matter what uniform they had on, no matter what their backgrounds were. They preserved the stains that would remind all who would come after them that this was the church of the bloodstained pews and that this place would be a place for the hurting to come It'd be a place for the wounded to be healed. And this would be a place for the suffering to come. Well, friends, today we are starting our new series called The Movement Begins. And for the next couple of weeks leading up to Pentecost Sunday, we're going to be looking and see how God started a movement that is the church It starts here in the book of Acts, as we're going to see, but this movement continues even today. And we aren't a place or a building, but we are a people that help bring healing to the hurting in our community and around the world. And we do it through the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Friends, let me ask you this morning, why do you do the things that you do. Think about that for a minute. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you cook the way that you cook? Why do you put the toilet paper on the way you put the toilet paper on, right? Is it because that's what your parents did? Is that because that's what you saw and grew up in? Is it because that's what your spouse wants it to be? More importantly, what motivates you to live the way that you live? What motivates you to gather with other followers of Jesus as you do? Is it because that's what your parents did? Is it because that's what your spouse wants you to do? Or is it because the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, because he suffered and he died, and on the third day he rose from the dead? Today, 
we're going to see how the resurrection of Jesus changes everything for everyone. You know, the book of Acts, as you're turning there, it, it goes hand in hand with the gospel of Luke. The book of Acts uh, is written as a second account to Theophilus, and it picks up where the gospel of Luke stops. The book of Acts tells us the things, the acts, that those who were closest to Jesus, uh, what they did in response to the resurrection of Jesus. They, they tell us the mission that Jesus left for them. And so if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me over to the book of Acts, if you're looking for it, it's in the New Testament, which is on the right side of your Bibles. You don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1. Acts comes right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and right before Romans. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 is where we'll start. And as you're turning there, again, I want to pose the question to you why do you live the way that you do? Why do you do the things that you do? What has convinced you to live this way? You know, most historians, both Christian and secular, agree that Jesus was a real person and that Jesus really did die in crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. But it's what happened after that where many secular uh, historians tend to be a little bit more fuzzy. (laughs) But it's the resurrection of Jesus, this central event for the Christian faith. In fact, Paul will write and say, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, this man that we are talking about, talking about Jesus, either was and is just what he said or else he was a lunatic or something worse. We are told that Christ was killed for us and that his death has washed out our sins and that by dying, he disabled death itself. This is the formula. This is Christianity, Lewis said. Friends, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then he would still be dead and you and I would still be in our sins and our faith would be worthless. Friends, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then we are wasting our time here this morning. We are wasting our time gathering on Sunday mornings. We are wasting our time changing the way that we think and the way that we speak and the way that we live. We might as well just live like the rest of the world because if Jesus is still dead, then there's no hope. But friends, the truth is that the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation It's the heart of everything that we are and everything that we do as followers of Jesus, as the church. And if Jesus is still dead, then there's no mission for us to carry out because there's no hope for the lost. But the truth is, as we're going to see today, Jesus did raise from the dead. So let's dig in and examine some of the convincing proofs that Jesus has given us. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1 with me. Luke writes and he says, uh, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did, began to do, and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, the the apostles had chosen 
excuse me, the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Let's pause there for just a moment. So Luke writes here, and he says that Jesus gave them many convincing proofs that he had risen from the dead. And he did this over a period of about 40 days. After his resurrection, he appeared many times, as we're going to see today, to many different groups of people, including these apostles. And he gave them these convincing proofs that he had indeed risen from the dead. The Greek word that we have here for convincing proofs means a sure sign. It's a a word that's used in logic to speak about a demonstration of evidence that is clinching the case. He gave them these convincing proofs. They were thoroughly convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. These people that were present were thoroughly convinced that Jesus had risen. Now, we saw last week that many of these guys, these apostles, and many of the early church even would end up giving their life for this very fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. If Jesus hadn't really risen from the dead, if they hadn't been thoroughly convinced, if they hadn't had those convincing proofs, they they wouldn't have given their lives in some of the horrific ways that we saw last week. But they did because they were thoroughly convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. So friends, let me ask you this morning, what has or what would convince you that Jesus has conquered death? What convincing proofs do you know? I want to share with you just a couple of them this morning. And I think it's good for us to start at the beginning, okay? So where do we get our information about Jesus' resurrection? Well, we get that from the Bible, right? But can we really trust what the Bible says? I hope to give you some information to maybe help you to see that we actually can trust what the Bible says and that it is God's Word. Now, as I said, most historians, both uh, Christian and secular, agree that Jesus was a real person that really lived and that he really died by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. We actually have some other historians from around that time that write about that. So people, you know, people aren't really um, convinced that Jesus wasn't a real person. What, what they're less convinced of is that is he the son of God? And is it he who the Bible says he is? So can we trust what the Bible says? I want to give you just a couple of quick uh, evidence for us being able to trust the Bible. And I'll point out a couple of resources that if you want to dig deeper into this, uh, some great books out there. Uh, There's a book called Case for Christ uh, by a guy named Lee Strobel. It's a great resource I recommend to you. Another one is How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. Those are a great couple of starting places for you if you want to dive a little bit further into some of this, right? But the first thing that we can see about the Bible to see whether or not it is reliable is we get to see its unity, all right? This is one book, but it's really 66 different books. It's more of a library, actually, that we carry in one book. And these 66 different books 
were written over a period of about 1,500 years by about 40 different authors, as we're going to see a little bit later, in three different languages, in a variety of different styles. And yet, there is not a single contradiction in between these pages. There's unity in this book. If you've done much reading at all, you know how hard it is for a single author in a single book at one time to not contradict themselves, let alone the vast diversity that there is in the Bible. 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three different languages, and yet there's unity there. There's unity found in Scripture. Now here at Journey Church, we say this. We say that we believe the Bible is God's word. That it's written in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And God's word, the Bible, explains to us God's character and his will and his plan for us. We say that the Bible was written by men, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it contains no error and is not subject to time and culture. We can trust the Bible because it is God's word and because it has unity. Not only can we trust the Bible because it has unity, but it also has fulfilled prophecies. If we just look at the prophecies of the Messiah, the one that was supposed to be coming to save the world, there are 48 major prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. We can trust God's word because it has unity, because it has fulfilled prophecy, and also because it has historical accuracy. You know, the Bible makes claims of historical events that took place at specific dates and times and places right? It's not, it's not vague on some of those things. It's very direct. Like it claims that this happened at this time and this day and this place, right? So with those types of claims, we should be able to go back if they really did happen and find evidence of them. And what we are seeing is uh, archaeologists and historians are finding more and more evidence of the historical accuracy of the claims that are made in the Bible. So we can trust the Bible because it has unity, because it has fulfilled prophecy, and because it has historical accuracy. So these are just some, okay? We could spend a whole series going through even more of these, right? But these are just a few, and I encourage you to check out some more. So if we can trust what the Bible tells us, what does the Bible tell us then about the resurrection of Jesus, all right? What does it tell us about the resurrection of Jesus? Well, some may claim that Jesus, man, you know, he was a real person, okay? He really did die, but maybe he didn't really die um, on the cross that day. Maybe he wasn't really dead. Well, what does the Bible tell us? Well, in John chapter 19, verse 32, it says this. It says, the soldiers who were the Roman soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first two men that had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. And so they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. 
The man who saw this has given testimony. His testimony is true, and he knows what he tells is the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. So what we see here in John is that the Roman soldiers, they came because they knew that Passover was coming, and so they wanted to speed up the death of the three men that had been crucified. And so they begin to break their legs, okay? Now, Roman soldiers were trained in the art of execution. It's what they did. They were experts at it. And they were infamous and known for crucifixions. This is their job. This is what they did. They wouldn't have made a mistake about whether or not Jesus was dead. In fact, that's why they went and they broke the legs of the other two. Now, we we looked back on Easter Sunday about the crucifixion, and we saw that the crucifixion, uh, the person didn't actually die just simply because they were hanging to the cross, but they died of of suffocation. Uh, It's a slow, painful death. As they hung there, they would have to push themselves up to, to get a breath. And so by them breaking their legs, it would speed up the process of their death because they would no longer be able to push themselves up. But when they get to Jesus, they recognize that he is already dead. But just to verify that he wasn't just pretending, (laughs) they, they put a spear in his side. You see, what happens when your breathing is slowed, your heart begins to beat slower, your lungs don't get as much breath, and fluid starts to build up in your chest cavity and around your heart and your lungs and this acidic um, condition in the tissue as the lungs begin to collapse. And eventually the, the heart and the lungs fail. And so when they pierced his side, it's why that flow of blood and water came out. Jesus was really dead. The Roman soldiers wouldn't have made a mistake about that. On top of that, If they had, they would have given their own life for that mistake. So they would make sure that he was dead. They were trained in execution, so when they came to Jesus, they realized that he was already dead. And so just to make sure, they pierced his side, and blood and water came flowing out. Okay, so Jesus did really live, and he did really die, but maybe... Maybe he didn't raise from the dead, and maybe his disciples just came and they stole his body. Well, what does the Bible tell us? In Matthew 27, verse 62, it says, The next day, the one after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate and said, Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been risen, raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. So take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so they went and they made the tomb secure, putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. So the Pharisees were concerned had that same concern. The disciples would come and steal the body. So they go to Pilate and say, hey, look, we remember that this guy said that he would raise from the dead after three days. And we're afraid, uh, we don't think he's really gonna do that, but we're afraid that his disciples may come and steal his body and tell everybody that he's risen from the dead. 
And so Pilate gives him charge of a, a group of Roman soldiers to go and, and make the, the tomb secure. This guard of Roman soldiers who, as we've already seen, are experts in execution, they seal the tomb, uh, and they would not have been easily overtaken by a group of fishermen and tax collectors. In fact, it would, they would need probably an entire army to stop them. Because again, if they had failed at their post, it would mean that they would take their own life. We see this some in the book of Acts, right? The doors of the jail open up, and the guard thinks that, uh, that, that uh, Paul and all of them had left the prison, and so he pulls out his sword to take his own life uh, because he knew that his own life was uh, at risk. And Paul says, oh, we're, we're still here. Don't, don't kill yourself, right? Um, they would have been responsible if they had failed at keeping their post. It would have taken an army to steal the body of Jesus. So, okay, Jesus really did die. His disciples couldn't have stolen his body. But maybe the women that went to the tomb, maybe they just went to the wrong tomb, right? Maybe they didn't know where they were supposed to be going and they just went to the wrong tomb. When well, Luke 23, 50, we see that the women had followed Joseph as he buried Jesus on that Friday because at sunset, the Passover, the Sabbath was starting. And so they would have to wait uh, to come back until that Sunday morning to finish preparing Jesus's body for burial. And so they followed Joseph to the tomb with uh, anticipation and planning uh, of their return to finish preparing Jesus's body. And so they knew exactly where to go. They went to the tomb, and then when they found that the tomb was empty, they went and told Peter and John, and Peter and John would have had to go to the same empty tomb, <laughs> right? So if the women were mis mistaken, so was Peter and John. When they returned at different times, they, they both came to the empty tomb and examined it was empty. Oh, okay, so Jesus did die. His disciples couldn't have stolen his body because it was under the Roman soldier's guard. The women weren't mistaken and going to the wrong tomb, but maybe all the people who saw Jesus raised from the dead, maybe, maybe they were just all hallucinating or hysterical. Well, maybe that would be the case for one or two, right? But over a period of 40 days, for a multitude of different people, to have the same, dis, dis, the same exact hallucination. And in fact, a group of 500 people at one time having the same hallucination is hard to really think. In fact, Paul would testify later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he would say this in verse 3. He says, For what we received I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that was Peter, and to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So not only had Jesus appeared to all these different groups of people, but many of them at the time that the New Testament was written and being distributed, these letters and these books were being written and passed around, most of them were still living. And so they could say, hey, you were there. Did that really happen? Tell me about your experience of what you saw with that. Not only had the apostles, but many other eyewitnesses could have been questioned and their testimony uh, about Jesus being raised from the dead. So it's hard to believe that 500 people would have the same exact hallucination 
at the same time. According to the Bible, Jesus really physically lived and really physically died and really physically was buried and really physically on the third day rose from the dead. And many witnesses saw that. And in fact, even Thomas touched Jesus. Many of the apostles ate with Jesus afterwards. And these same eyewitnesses would go on to defend the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, even if it meant that they would lose their own life to do it. With no promise of fame or fortune, these men were willing to testify that Jesus really had risen from the dead because they were thoroughly convinced Jesus had risen from the dead and had given them many convincing proofs to the fact of his resurrection. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and me? What does the resurrection of Jesus change for us? Well, God has done this extraordinary thing by raising Jesus from the dead, and now God is beginning to start to build his kingdom using ordinary people like you and me to do his extraordinary work. And he talks about this in the next couple of verses. Look again at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, After suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you... Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times and the dates my father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus not only gave them convincing proofs that he had risen from the dead. But then he talked with them about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of God is Christ's church, where Jesus sits on the throne and rules as head. The kingdom of God is made up of people who submit themselves to God's authority. Remember how Jesus taught us how to pray? He said to pray to God the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now the apostles, they were expecting an earthly political kingdom. And it wouldn't be for another couple days until they received that baptism of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit opened their minds up to what Jesus was actually talking about all along, right? That he wasn't just coming to establish an earthly political kingdom with Israel, but the kingdom of God would be much more than just Israel. The kingdom of God would be his church. 
started on the fact and foundation that Jesus is the Son of God and that He rose from the dead, founded with the authority of God the Father and founded with the power of God the Holy Spirit. This is what the kingdom of God is. It's the church. And the church is built on the extraordinary acts of God. And it's built by you and me doing what God has called us to do. Ordinary people serving an extraordinary God. But why? Why did God choose to start the church? Why did God choose to build the kingdom, his kingdom in this way? Well, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore more about this. But we start to get a glimpse here in verse 8. Jesus says, but you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Ordinary people like you and me testifying, witnessing the work of an extraordinary God, that he was raised from the dead and he transforms us. Through this series that we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how these people We're thoroughly convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, and we're going to see how they responded to that truth. It changed everything that they did. It changed everything everything that they were. They devoted themselves to some new things. They changed the way that they viewed their work and their friendships and their marriages and their children and their finances. It changed the way that they served and the way that they cared for others. So friends, if you are thoroughly convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead, how then should you respond? What should Jesus raising from the dead change about the way that you work and spouse and parent and friend and and, uh, finance and life group and serve and play? What should the resurrection of Jesus change about you? Friends, if you are convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead, our first response to that is to die to ourselves in our sin so that we can start living for him. And friends, if you are thoroughly convinced that Jesus is who he says he was, that he is the son of God and that he has risen from the dead, won't you come today and give your life to him? and die to your sins, and meet him in baptism, and be joined in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So by the same power that raised him from the dead, you can be raised from the dead of your sins. And if you're ready to do that today, I'd love to talk with you. Or if you want to talk about what that means, I'd love to talk with you. I'm going to be in the lobby in just a few minutes. For those of us who already have responded for the first time, if we are thoroughly convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead, how are we daily responding to that truth? You know, maybe you've made Jesus your Savior, but maybe, maybe there's some things that you haven't given him lordship over yet. 
Maybe there's some, some sins and some things that you still want to have control over that you haven't surrendered to him. And maybe today you need to, to right here and now say, Jesus, you're my savior and I'm making you the Lord of even those parts of my life. Every part of my life. Won't you surrender that to him? But maybe today and this week you need to respond to the resurrection of Jesus like Dr. Wilbur Chapman said. He said that in the New Testament, it records 40 different people, each of them suffering diseases who were healed by Jesus. He says, of those 40 people, 34 of them were either brought to Jesus by their friends or their friends brought Jesus to them. Only six of those people made their way without assistance to Jesus. But the vast majority of people found their way to Jesus because somebody else brought them. And friends, the same is true today. So maybe how you respond to the resurrection of Jesus is by leading others to him. Being concerned about the welfare of others' eternities and their souls, enough to bring them to find healing and hope in Jesus. Friends, let's be witnesses here in our Jerusalem, in Washington, and in Beaufort County, and in eastern North Carolina. Let's be witnesses of Jesus even to the ends of the earth. We say here at Journey Church that we want to help everyone discover their relationship with Jesus. And everyone means our neighbors, and our family members, and our co-workers, and the people in our community. Let's go And let's tell the world that Jesus has risen from the dead and that he has been raised to become the true king. So who do you need to bring to Jesus this week? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for giving many convincing proofs that your son had risen from the dead. And we thank you that his resurrection changes everything and it can change everything for us because it brings us forgiveness and redemption. It brings us your grace that we can be justified to you even though we don't deserve it. It's your riches poured out on us despite us being your enemies. Father, if there are those that are listening this morning who have never given their life to you for the first time and never repented of their sins and met you in baptism, would you call them and lead them to you today? For those of us who have, Father, would you convict us of the the areas that we are still holding on to our, our own kingship over? And Father, help us to surrender those daily to you. And Father, help us to go and to be your witnesses, to point our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers to you because you are God, the creator and the sustainer. And you have sent your son to die for for our sins. And he has risen from the dead and his resurrection changes everything us. Father, use us as your witnesses this week. 
Help us to bring and point other people to your son. And Father, we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Friends, we're going to move into our time of communion and commitment and prayer. And for us as followers of Jesus, communion reminds us that Jesus isn't dead anymore. He rose from the dead. Communion reminds us of his sacrifice, but it also reminds us of his resurrection. The bread reminds us of his body and the cup reminds us of his blood. So use this time and, and maybe there's some, some, some areas like we talked about that you haven't surrendered to God. Would you confess those to God this morning? Would you confess those sins to him and examine yourself? And when you're ready, let's remember the sacrifice that Jesus has made. Let's remember his death and his burial. And let's remember his resurrection that changes everything for us. So let's remember when you're ready together. I'll be out in the lobby if you need to talk.